Well, I greet you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. I appreciate those who have braved the elements and joined us in person, along with those who are with us online. Uh, today we are continuing our January worship series, which is also, also our church-wide year-long theme of Route 66. Uh, the 66 refers to the 66 books of the Bible, and Root recognizes that we are all on this Christian pilgrimage together. And throughout the year, we are focusing on the authority and the relevance of Scripture in our lives. We're inviting the congregation to read the New Testament together. And the reading plan begins on Monday, January 31st at the conclusion of our sermon series. Uh, the reading plan is available in a variety of ways. Uh, we have published a brochure that you can stick in your Bible. It's available out in the lobby. You can pick it up after worship. It's on the church website, and we are also going to be sending out on our weekday devotions. Every day, Monday through Friday, Saturday, you will get the reading. One chapter a day, six days a week, Monday through Saturday, with Sunday as a Sabbath, we'll be able to finish the New Testament by Thanksgiving week. And it's a journey that is going to change our lives. Last week, I began the sermon series by talking about the Bible as the owner's manual for life. And today, I ask the question, did Jesus use the King James version of the Bible? Our scripture lesson comes from Psalm 1. Listen to the introduction of the Psalter. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on God's law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Amen. Last week, I talked about how the Bible is not only a book, but also a book of books. In fact, the word Bible comes from the Greek biblia, which literally means the books. Within the covers of Scripture, there are 66 books written by various authors in different times and places over a span of of centuries. And today, the Bible is the most published book in the history of the world and an annual bestseller. And probably many of us here have multiple copies at home, but that was not always the case. And today I come to ask the question, how did the Bible come to be? In many people's minds, I think there is perhaps a subliminal belief that one day, Poof, the Bible just miraculously appeared on some pastor's desk. Or God invited a group of human authors to sit around a table and said, take dictation. The reality is the formation and compilation of the Bible spanned millennia and was a human divine partnership. What we now call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures began as the Jews telling their stories one to the other about their faith encounters with God. 
And these stories were passed from one generation to the next. And children certainly were taught the faith, but they also caught the faith. And over time, those stories were recorded as Scripture. And the first group of materials that were bound together were the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In Hebrew, it's known as the Torah, which means the law or the teachings. And in Greek, it's Pentateuch. Penta means five. Tuch means books. The next major section in Hebrew Scripture that formed was the prophets that spanned the age from when the Jews entered into the Promised Land through the end of Babylonian captivity. When we hear the word prophecy, we think about predicting the future. But the prophets were much more concerned about calling Israel to repentance and holiness in the present. The third major group of books that came together was known as the writings. Included songs, poetry, short stories, books like the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. But it might surprise some to discover that the final compilation of Hebrew Scripture did not occur until 90 A.D., which was 60 years after Jesus' death at a council of Jomnia. And that is a process that is known as canonization, of determining what books belong in Scripture and which ones do not. But over the years that I've been in the pastorate, I've had people repeatedly ask me, is the Old Testament really important to Christians? The very adjective of old seems to delineate and denote a lesser status. But God doesn't change. God is the same today as God was yesterday and will be tomorrow. The character and nature of God are eternal from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 22. I'd also remind you that Jesus was Jewish. The original apostles, Jewish. The early church, Jewish. The only scripture they had was Hebrew scripture. In fact, last week we heard from Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, where he talked about how all scripture is God-breathed. And I'm going to make a point that's obvious as soon as I say it. When Paul wrote those words, the New Testament hadn't been compiled yet. Paul was writing, literally, the New Testament when he wrote those words. So when he said all Scripture is God-breathed, he was talking about Hebrew Scripture. And it continues to be important for spiritual formation and understanding who we are and who God is in the Christian's life today. So let's now consider the New Testament. Because the early church had the Hebrew Scriptures as their only Bible, but over time, authors wrote additional books and letters that the church began to realize had been inspired by the Holy Scripture and were attaining the status of Holy Scripture. The books in the New Testament were written over a span of about 50 years. Chronologically, the earliest ones written were by Paul, in the 50s A.D. The first gospel was not written until about 30 years after Jesus' death, 60 A.D., by Mark. 
And the final book of the Bible of Revelation was written in the mid-90s A.D. And the church began to set aside a group of books because they believed they were divinely inspired. They were associated with one of the original apostles. They were universally accepted in church life. They were used by various congregations in preaching, teaching, and worship. And they were seen as agreeing with the overall witness of Scripture. But it wasn't until about the end of the 5th century, around 400 A.D., when the final version of the New Testament came into being, with 27 books divided into four major categories. There's the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the story of Jesus. There's the Acts of the Apostles that tell the history of the early church. There are letters or epistles written by Paul and others. And then there's Revelation, which is a foretelling of the final days. It might surprise you to discover some of those books almost didn't make the final cut. Hebrews, because it has uncertain authorship. James, because he focuses more on works than he does on faith. Jude, who seems to refer to a book that was not included in the New Testament. And Revelation, because it's, well, bizarre. When people hear the story of how the Bible came to be, the Old and the New Testament, it causes some consternation, concerns, doubts, and angst, because it was in so many ways such a human process of human authors, compilation, and approval. But let me pause here and say to you, that's the story of the Bible. That's the story of our faith, that the Lord God Almighty chooses to work through human beings, that God uses us for who we are and sometimes despite who we are to get God's work done. Consider one of the primary images used of the church in the New Testament. We are the body of Jesus Christ. Think about that literally for a moment. If God's work gets done, it's because we do it. If God's word gets spoken, it's because we speak it. If God's mission gets accomplished, it's because we hold out our hands and our feet to go out and get it done. Scripture is this beautiful partnership between the divine and the human as God's word is spoken through human words. Today, the Bible has been translated into every known language in the world. But originally, the Hebrew Scriptures were written in ancient Hebrew and a little bit in Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Koine or Common Greek. I'm going to make a very obvious point. Whenever you pick up an English version of the Bible, you are reading a translation. And there are all sorts of different translations out there that help us to be able to access God's Word. But for years, the Bible was only in Hebrew and in Greek. It wasn't translated into Latin until about 400 A.D. 
and wasn't translated into English until the 1300s. But the most famous translation into English occurred in the 17th century. In 1604, King James I of England commissioned a group of scholars to produce a new translation of the Bible in English. And this was partly motivated by the Puritan movement in the Church of England. I mention that historical fact for a reason. Because you know the later part of the story. How in 1620 there was a group of Puritans who traveled to the New World. You know, on the Mayflower, Plymouth Rock, the Pilgrims, Thanksgiving. That movement was the impetus for what became the King James Version of the Bible in 1611. And it became the most used English translation of the Bible for centuries. In fact, when I was a young teenager, most of the members of the congregations I was associated with still use the KJV. And there are some churches to this day that believe that's the only version you ought to use. And I say it tongue-in-cheek, but there are some people out there who believe Jesus used the King James Version of the Bible. But here's the thing. The King James Version was written about the same time William Shakespeare published his plays. If you struggled with British lit in high school, odds are good you're going to struggle with Elizabethan English in the King James Version of the Bible. Now, there's some parts of it I absolutely adore. Psalm 23 sounds strange to me in anything but the KJV. The same for Luke's Christmas story. But for most people, a more modern translation of the Bible is helpful. And when you go out, if you haven't bought a Bible recently or are looking for a new one, there are two major groups that you choose from. There are groups of scholars that attempt to write accurate translations of the Bible, but in ways that are legible and accessible in English today. And then there are other either groups or individuals that write paraphrases of the Bible that may sacrifice a little bit of accuracy in order to make it more accessible to people in modern English. And there are a variety of great translations out there, and I encourage you to go to a Christian bookstore, go online, find one that makes sense to you. Uh, In this week's pastoral letter, I'm going to be talking about, I use the New International Version. I love its accuracy, but I also love how it makes sense in my mind and how it's translated. A more recent translation is a common English Bible. Find one that works for you. And then once you find one, you think you're done, right? No. Because buying a Bible is a lot like buying a car. There are all sorts of options. You get to pick which kind of cover you want. You want leather? You want hardbound? You want paperback? You also, and for those of us who are getting a little bit older, you want to look at what the size of the font is inside. I'm discovering that's more and more important. You can also get a digital version on your phone, on your tablet, on your computer. I also recommend if you're getting a new Bible, get a study Bible. Study Bibles are not just the scripture alone. They also have an introduction to each book. They have explanatory notes at the bottom. They have maps and a concordance and other reference items in the back. And they will help you understand what scripture is saying. 
So we understand how the Bible came to be. We find a Bible that makes sense to us. We begin the process of studying it. But there's another step here. And I will, I will define that step the same way a seminary professor did once in a class I was taking on the book of Romans. He said, once you read the Bible, you need to ask an important question. So what? So what? Now, he did not ask that in a sacrilegious sort of way but instead asked it in the sense that when we read God's Word, it drives us to do something, to change something, to become a people different than we are today, to ask that so what question of how does God's Word apply to my world. Last week when we heard Paul talk about Scripture as being God-breathed, I said to you, we don't read the Bible the way we do any other book. Because when we open the pages of Scripture, we're entering into a conversation with God. And we might think we're interpreting the Bible, but the Bible's also interpreting us. And if I lost you in some of the history of how the Bible came to be, I hope you'll at least tune in to this next part. The translation of the Bible does not only occur in volumes we find in Christian bookstores. The translation of the Bible also occurs in each of our lives. How it gets translated from paper and ink to heart and soul, from word to world, from self to others, from now forever, is the so what question of how God wants to use God's word to change us, to change others, to change the world. And so we're invited on this exciting pilgrimage we're calling Route 66 to read the New Testament together and ask the question, so what? Of our individual lives, of our small groups, and of our community of faith. One of the great church fathers who lived in the 4th and 5th century was Augustine. And he wrote uh, books on theology that continue to shape the church today. And he wrote about his own spiritual autobiography in a book that was entitled Confessions. Because in his earlier life, Augustine led a life of sinful abandon. And he kept hearing God's call upon him, but he kept rejecting it. In fact, one of his famous self-centered prayers was this, Lord... Grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. And then one day, he was so distraught, he ran out into the backyard, threw himself face first on the ground, and cried out to God for deliverance. And beyond the wall, in the next courtyard, Augustine wrote how he heard a childlike voice call out, Take up and read. Take up and read. And he interpreted that as the Holy Spirit calling him to take up God's Word and read it. And it changed his life. And it transformed the church. And it continues to reverberate in the Christian faith to this day.
God's word holds that power. And when God's people hear God's cry to take up and read, well, that journey, that trip can change our lives, our families, our church, our community, our nation, our world forever. Let us pray. Gracious God, we hear the invitation over and again to take up and read. And we pray for your spirit to fortify our spirits with a commitment, with a discipline, to join together one with the other in reading your New Testament in the coming year. And we pray that your word that is contained in human word would speak to our lives and change us. As we ask the question, so what? What new thing do you want to do in our lives and within Northside Church? We look forward to taking this trip together. In Christ's name, we make our prayer. Amen.